Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Together today with Marsha Scarborough. She is the author of the prize-winning book, Medicine Dance, One Woman's Healing Journey into the World of Native American Sweat Lodges, Drumming, Meditation, and Dance Fasts. She is also a freelance journalist with over 75 articles published in a wide variety of national magazines. Beyond this, she's a graduate of the Directors Guild of America's prestigious Assistant Directors Training Program, and she spent 17 years scheduling, planning, and running the sets of major feature films. Marsha traveled with Buddhist teacher Joan Halifax, danced with movement guru Gabrielle Roth, earned a brown belt in karate from martial arts legend Tak Kubota, and practiced healing ceremonies with the Native American mystic, beautiful painted arrow, Joseph Rael. And she has produced workshops for Nigerian master drummer and ceremonial leader Ayo Adeyemi. Hi, Marsha. Welcome. Thank you, Joanna. It's great to be here. And the first question I would like to ask you is, I'm holding your book in my hand, Medicine Dance, and what is it that propelled you into writing this book? Well, uh, the whole experience I had with um, the teacher, Beautiful Painted Arrow, Joseph Rael, which was over a number of years, 20 of 20 years, and some years later I looked back and realized that there was really a story there and uh, decided to write it. Let's say today, the book was published in 2009. Today, when you look at the book, can you tell me what is the main message of the book? I think the main message of the book is to um, follow your... Follow what interests you, and that the universe puts things in your path that may be unlikely, uh, that other people may think are crazy, but there's a if it interests you and you follow it, there's a payoff in it for you, and in, in my case, in terms of health and healing, but also in living life in a new way from a point of view of um, living without making decisions from fear, living fearlessly in the world and just embracing life on a more deeper, more authentic level. So uh, do you feel that uh, you have had a spiritual awakening in this life? Absolutely. Um, and it really started when my mother died. I think that was the first time I had a spiritual experience rather than just an intellectual idea of what it might be. 
And it was shortly after that that I was propelled. I met Beautiful Painted Arrow and uh, through extraordinary circumstances was was led to work with him in a deeper and deeper way. And that, you know, fired my spirituality on many, in many different ways. You have said that feeling your mother after she died, you thought and felt, death is majestic. Could you, I've never heard that word used uh, in terms of death, and I would like you to say, let, let out what that feels for you. I think our culture is afraid of death, and we sort of see it as a spooky monster or something to be avoided, and we don't look very closely at it. But in the case of my mother, who spent a year really dying of cancer, and I was with her most of that time and deeply involved in it, um, I realized that it was this opportunity to see the spirit or the soul leaving the body sort of incrementally and then finally completely was the greatest affirmation that the soul exists, that spirit exists, and that it was a huge privilege to experience that and, you know, see the difference between her as the person I knew and the body that was left, which did not have her energy in it at all and didn't even seem to be her. And I think perhaps like birth, birth is another really majestic experience and death is equivalent. You know, it's a fantastic trip. So perhaps uh, we could see the the body as a, a marvelous placenta, <laughs> a, a vehicle that has you know its prime time and then breaks down, and whatever was riding in that vehicle goes on to some other mysterious experience that we don't know about. So uh, tell us, Marsha, your experience with Joseph Rael. It was here in New Mexico. It actually started in Los Angeles. So I was in my, I was turning about turning forty. This was over twenty years ago, and everything in my life was going wrong. So my parents were dying. Um, my eighteen-year marriage was on the rocks. Uh, I had a career in the movie business that was heading downhill, and all these things in my life were like problematic. And then I went to have a mammogram and you get the call that the mammogram is not good and you need to come back again. So, but they can't give you an appointment for two weeks because, uh, so you wait, you go back and they're like, well, this, uh, you know, it's still not definitive. We have to show it to a specialist, but you can't get an appointment for two weeks. And so then you go to see the specialist and he's like, well, I'm not really, I think you need a, a sonogram but you can't get an appointment for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so by then, you know, fear is really coursing through my body. I'm really scared that I have cancer and feeling helpless. Like there's nothing I can do about it. And a friend said, you know, there's this Native American medicine man in town uh, and he's doing the private healings. And I was like, sign me up. It's something I can do. And that was how I met Joseph Rael. And it was a private healing session, uh, which I now recognize. Why did you say sign me up? What was it? <laughs> well, it was, it was something, the universe presented it to me. It was something I could do. I could be powerful in that way. And, you know, 
whether or not it worked, it, it was an experiment that might work. And I was feeling really desperate. Right. So I was, okay. you know, just like, yeah. basically, I'll try anything, and this is here. Okay. And um, so in the private session with him then, um, it's, he did what I now recognize as energy work, but um, then I didn't know what it was. But he did that, and he did what shamans call an extraction. He removed something. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, may or may not have been imaginary. And in that, when he did that extraction, I said, I felt that I could see what he took out and that it was like a little arrowhead. And that I felt like my mother put it there and I didn't know why I felt that way. And he said, well, that really doesn't matter, but you know, you need to work on your relationship with your mother, even though she's dead. So he then gave me, um, a ceremony to be able to communicate with my mother who was not on this earth anymore. And it involved making her favorite food and going out on the earth and dropping it on the earth and talking to her. And so that beginning of, I think, healing with of my relationship with my dead mother was the beginning of healing myself. Then after that, um, private healing, oh, then I went back for the the sonogram, and uh, the, they couldn't find anything at all. And they, they were like, we, you know what, there's nothing here. What's, what's going on? So to me, it was a, a miraculous right. healing. And so then I was really interested in what he was doing and how it worked. And so he gradually gave me more and more, um, you know, well, you need to try the sweat lodge which I thought was fantastically practical and amazing. And you need to do this, you need to do, you need to do the dance. And so over a period of years, I became more and more deeply involved in the way that he worked. So for our listeners, would you describe what a sweat lodge ceremony is and speak about the dance? Okay. And maybe I'll say a little bit more about yes. Joseph Real in that he's from New Mexico. And so I eventually ended up in New Mexico because that's where he was. But he's half Picaris Pueblo, which is between Santa Fe and Taos, and half Southern Ute, which is Southern Colorado. So it's a, a Pueblo, half Pueblo and half Plains. So he kind of draws from both traditions. And he's a bit of, he's a mystic and isn't strictly traditional. He may pull in more psychology or more what we might consider new age ideas. Although I think these new age ideas really are, you know, come from the ancient tradition. Um, so, uh, the sweat lodge, which was the first thing he introduced me to, um, you, there's a structure, igloo shaped structure covered with blankets and hot rocks are put into that to create like basically a sauna. So it's, Praying in a sauna, essentially. But the symbology of it is that it's the womb of Mother Earth, and you are crawling back into the womb of Mother Earth. And in this intense heat and darkness and sort of claustrophobic atmosphere, you have the opportunity to blow your molecules apart and reassemble yourself. Castaneda might say switch your assemblage point Mm -hmm. uh, into a way that you want to be. to change yourself. And then when you exit, you're essentially being reborn back into earth as your new self. Um, And the concretization of that idea 
that, you know, you, we, I mean, we can have the idea that we can change ourselves, of course, in, in any way, but to have this physical experience that concretized that to me was really powerful and still is. And I kind of recommend the sweat lodge to everybody um, as just like an amazing, amazing practical way. I had done a lot of talking therapy and uh, Western psychotherapy. And so I knew what my issues were. It was like, I knew why I was messed up, but I didn't have any tools to fix myself. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the sweat lodge was that and very powerful. Okay. And the dance, the... So another technique is the the dance fast, the marathon dance. And the one we're most familiar with is the Sioux, Lakota Sioux version, um, where they uh, they pierce, and it's all like something a lot of people know a bit about. He's a Southern Ute, and so he his is based more on the Southern Ute version. But basically, you go into the wilderness together, uh, then a group of people who are going to dance, you build a corral. The dance is contained within a corral. In the center of the corral is a, a sacred tree that connects heaven and earth. And then you fast food and water, and you you dance. There are drummers who are drumming and singing um, for f- three or four days. And there's a couple different versions, and four days is the, the longest version. Uh, the drumming goes on for a couple hours at a time, then they take a little break, and then then they drum again, and they and you rest at night. You sleep in the corral in your place at night. Um, so that's a very intense, enforced meditation because it's pretty much the same drum beat for four days. And so you don't really have any place to go mentally except to be you know, fixated on that. So you, you're not really thinking, or maybe you are a little bit at the beginning, but by the time the thirst and the hunger and the monotonous drumbeat get to you, then you are in an altered state of consciousness. So it it is, you know, a, a trip where you are in a deep meditation that, you know, ex, where you can explore, you know, the, the innermost part of yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's... Kind of crazy. I don't recommend that to everyone. And then part of it is when, if spirit calls to you and instructs you in the Southern Ute version, that tree in the middle, the dancer will suddenly break into a run and collide with that tree. And that is, the, again, the shifting of the assemblage point that Castaneda talks about. Right, right. Like when you say in your book, that uh, you went to a chiropractor. <laughs> you said, I ran into a tree. <laughs> and the chiropractor went with your car. <laughs> you said, no. <laughs> so, Marsha, what is it like to have changed the place of your assemblage point? Can you put that into words? I think for, for me, and it's probably different for everybody, but I, I think it was... It allowed me to break away from family patterns that were based on fear, based on that there's not enough. What do other people think? Uh, is this going to turn out all right? Uh, all the you know, and be able to be in the moment, recognize what's good in the moment or what is in the moment that may be comfortable or uncomfortable, and be with it 
And I think that's one of the great teachings of the sweat lodge is it is uncomfortable, for sure. And it's scary. And then you realize after you've done it a few times that you can sit through that and be uncomfortable for a while and then be fine. And so being able to approach life not being afraid of whether this event is going to be scary or I'm going to get lost or I'm going to run out of money or I'm going to, you know, and just be able to be in life trusting and living from a, a place of trust and doing what you love to do. So, okay, let's graduate. I I suggest that uh, the people who are listening uh, go to Amazon and get Medicine Dance by Marcia Scarborough. And uh, because it's a great adventure story and and a lot more than that. But what I'd like to concentrate on now is, so how do you live all this? One way is by being aware of fear and love. And um, basically I'm interested in the application of a spiritual awakening in everyday life. In the title, The Medicine Dance, dance is a metaphor for all of life, but it's also the dance, the physical dance, the moving of the, of the physical body in space in a repetitive way or a rhythmic way. And for me, it's important to do the physical dance. So I do several different, I do African dance, I do Zumba, I do a few different things because that uh, rhythmic moving of, of the body, I think not only is healing in a physical way, but the metaphysics of uh, the universe in Native American terms and also in African terms, which is the next book, is very much like quantum physics. So everything is, we know it's not solid, it's energy. So the natives believe that everything is energy moving, including our bodies. And, and as long as it's moving, everything is in balance. And balance is a very important part of the native teaching, the medicine wheel and the four directions and all that. That when all the, the emotional, physical, um, mental, and spiritual parts of us are in balance, the medicine wheel turns, everything's moving, and we're healthy in the world in, on every level. And so um, because we're just energy moving, that... that self of us, like beautiful painted arrow would say, we are composed in the same way that music is composed. And that's why things like music, rhythm, uh, and repetitive movement and chanting can be realigned in literally good vibrations. Literally good vibrations make us healthier and happier in the world. So, you know, dance music, drumming, chanting, all those things are important for keeping, I feel, for keeping me healthy. And, you know, I'm thinking that there's kind of no coincidence that in the 60s when we were with Timothy Leary discovering psychotropic drugs and expanded consciousness, music was also a very important part of that. And music, those vibrations were also affecting us and affecting the world. An explosion of music. An explosion of music, really good music you know, that that affected us on many different levels. And so I, I think that, you know, in the practical application, that's part of it, to keep moving 
and to keep, you know, rocking to the music, moving to the music, feeling the beat, feeling the rhythm, being part of that. Yep. So, again, uh, dance. And how else do you meet your life from the place that you have come to? Well, another tool that I use that I learned from Beautiful Painted Arrow and other people is the, the drum journey, where you trance to a specific drum beat. And this is many cultures use it. The definitive book on it is The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. And he was an anthropologist, and he, he had noticed this happening in the Amazon. And then I think he went to, like, uh, Scandinavia and saw the lap people doing it, and then researched it. And so it's like almost every culture, the shamans use this technique. So the, there's a certain drum beat that puts you into the trance. And then in that trance, you go into an active imagination journey into either the middle world, which is the world we're in, Um, the upper world, which is where dead people are, basically Jesus, Buddha, my mother, and all that, or the lower world, which is animal guides. And before you start the journey, you can have a specific question about anything you're in doubt about in your life or any decision you're trying to make. And then you enter the trance through the, the drum journey, and you will meet incredible guides along the way who, you, when you ask your specific question, will give you a specific answer. So that's something that I feel, you know, whenever I feel a little lost, confused, don't know what decision to make, I have that tool that I can go to and really, uh, I guess, connect with my very highest self that knows the ultimate truth and easily okay. find out. What's the ultimate truth? <laughs> I think the ultimate truth is we should enjoy ourselves as much as possible because <sighs> we are going to die. That's another thing that I would, I appreciated about the native teachers is what somebody would be really scared, scared and say, I don't want to do this with lunch because I'm afraid I might die. They'd say, you're going to die. There are no survivors. We hope you don't die tonight, but you know, you may. So just be ready and be present with what is now and enjoy it because we don't know when our time is up. And so it's like, you know, have as much fun, dance every dance, and uh, be with people you really like. And I think that's the ultimate truth. So um, what about in relationship, Marsha? How do you... Um How do you live what you have found in relationship? I don't know how good I am at relationships. I have many friends that I appreciate and are, are very um, precious to me. Not particularly close to my family. Um, they think I'm weird, and I guess they're right. Um, and then I have been in... A couple of really long-term relationships, a long marriage and another long-term relationship. And they have their moments, but I think they also have a different set of problems. So as far as romantic relationships, maybe, maybe not. I, I, you know, I'm not sure that that's really the ultimate answer for me. So, um, But I think I did learn in all my relationships... 
about not needing, not trying to fix people, not trying to change people, letting people be the way they are and accepting that. And if that's not healthy for me, then that relationship is not healthy for me. So, Yeah, you say we cannot heal others. We can only help them remember they can heal themselves. So what does it represent to you to be healed or perhaps more precisely to be healing? I think it represents being fearless in confronting all the parts of me. Some of them are quite lovely and some of them are quite dark and that it's okay for both of those parts to be there and also in other people. And um, in not making myself wrong or anybody else wrong in where they happen to be at this moment because the healing is a continuous process and we're somewhere, you know, somewhere within it. It may not be where we end up, but it's right for us right now. And so I think there's just a, a, a wider embracing of, of myself and other people for whatever they're going through. It's not all unicorns and rainbows. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> From this vantage point, how do you see the impact of our generation of the 60s and 70s? You know, I think that we're so hip. <laughs> um I think we made a huge impact. I think we were really brave explorers. And I think we also succeeded in some ways and failed in some interesting ways and then learned from that. And I think, you know, we were, you know, the first ones to really explore different states of consciousness, different levels of being, um, you know, the whole sexual revolution, the whole women. I mean, we asked so many questions and asked the society so many questions that it had to deal with. I think we were, you know, very, very brave and, um, you know, really made some profound impact. And I think that we will continue to, those of us in this boomer generation, that we were sort of always the bump in the python, the greatest number, the baby boomers. And I think now going into our autumn years and our perhaps retirement, which of course we'll never be retired because we'll always be doing things. But I think we'll, we'll completely redefine what that means and what you know, can happen and what we can accomplish during the, this time when we're not so concerned with the householder aspect. Um, I'm still excited. <laughs> so something uh, came to mind, which is that it seems to me, living in the Southwest that the um, Native Americans, and I don't like to say Native American because American is an imported term, but the first people mm -hmm. uh, seem to have also since the 60s rediscovered their own ways. Uh, can you play with that idea and... Speak to us about that. I, I think that's very true, and it's still in process. 
um, there was a conscious effort by the dominant culture to um, break the spirit of the first people here so that we could take over all the land. And I think that was very consciously done with outlawing a lot of the religious practices, the dances and uh, all that which they had to keep undercover. And I think in breaking that spirit and, and denigrating that kind of culture, it did work in that then there were many problems with drug addiction and alcoholism and all that within those cultures. And I think now they're rediscovering, um, at the same time we're rediscovering, the power of their ancient wisdom and coming back into that and really, you know, I expect to see them make, make a huge resurgence too. I think there's so much power there that the dominant culture was probably correct to be afraid of it. And that, you know, as they really own it and they really learn to work it, we're going to see some really amazing things, I think, coming from them. I think that's really exciting too. The Oracle of Delphi said, it was engraved there, know thyself. So what is knowing thyself? Is it the ways, the traditions, knowing where one comes from? I was thinking about you uh, marrying your Anglo-Saxon a background with the Native American background. What, what is that? How do you do that? How do you connect with your own nativeness? Well, I think my actual ancestors were all from Britain and Ireland, so I'm probably the you know ultimate Anglo. <laughs> but also, I was born in this land, and this is my land, and this. I think a lot of the energy of the Native teachings is is in the land also, especially here in the Southwest where the Pueblo people were able to preserve their dances and they've been dancing on this land for more than 2,000 years, certainly. And I think that's why we feel New Mexico is a land of enchantment and why maybe there has never been a huge accident at Los Alamos because I think they have kept, you know, just uh, putting their energy into this land and holding, you know, holding this. So um, I honor them for that. And I think that, you know, I'm of this land because I was born here in America. Um, But as far as knowing myself, I think when you become more fearless and willing to live, look at yourself outside of the patterns of your culture and your family, and not that I'm going to become a Native American or really embrace that culture as who I am, because I also have studied other cultures. But I think in knowing myself, I know that I'm a bit wild and that our, our society expects us to be domesticated in a way. And there's part of me that doesn't really like being domesticated. And, and wants to travel and move and, and not necessarily live in a nuclear family and have a lot of influences and study a lot of cultures and, and you know, be more eclectic. And so I think that that's a part of discovering 
who I am in this whole world. So let's talk about fear and love. And um, how do you live this edge? Well, one recent experience was in the economic downturn. So to make a living, I had been um, selling real estate, investing in real estate and doing that kind of thing. And I just got caught in the collapse as the real estate market collapsed. I got caught with too much debt and not enough income coming in. And I had to declare bankruptcy. And it was something I really didn't want to do. And I really struggled with it. And it was a huge taboo. And a lot of shame associated with it. But, you know, when I really weighed all the options and did all the math, it made the most sense. So I went, I went ahead and did that. And it was surprisingly painless and really helped. And in fact, now I'm, the house that I own, that I live in, is in foreclosure. And yet the bank hasn't taken it back. And I'm continuing to live rent-free and this is like a wonderful time of my life. I have been given almost a, a scholarship from Spirit with my, my debts are eliminated. I have a place to live. And, you know, it's all really perfect. So, I mean, I think that's an example of something I really was afraid of, really didn't want to do. And it really has turned out to be a huge blessing for me. So how is it to look out on life from the window of fearlessness or increasing fearlessness? Increasing fearlessness and um, playing the edge. Because there are really some things to be afraid of. There are scary things in the world. And I've had to confront some of that lately too. And I think that the idea is not that you're... For example, a very close friend of mine was murdered, and I had to go and be in her house and see the scene of the crime and deal with the aftermath of that. And it was really so difficult, so sad, and so frightening on many levels. And it wasn't that I wasn't afraid. I was afraid, but I was present with my fear and was able to move through it and see that there were some, some blessings within the community where people came closer together, where you know, help came when it was needed. Um, but that, you know, that is something to be afraid. There are things that are f- to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. But that when you're in a place of knowing what's a phantom and what is real and then having the strength to be with the scary thing and confront it and know then that you can handle yourself, handle your emotions, um, feel, your, feel your emotions fully, that it becomes manageable. It's very interesting because as you were speaking, I got this image of different colors of paint coming into each other and and you don't know what 
what design is going to form from the coming together of these different colors. And then I started to think that abstract painting is exactly the opposite of abstract, because really it's it's the painting of pure transformation. And I saw that in regards to your friend who got murdered, these things that we don't understand, but they're events coming together that will form shapes and circumstances that we have no idea about. Right, and it can change the future through the pain and through recognizing that we can do things better or, you know, there's another way to approach it or, uh, you know, however we can grow from those things. So I think that, in you know, there are the beautiful, joyful, ecstatic parts of life. There are the scary, difficult, sad parts of life. And we learn from things even though we may not totally enjoy them. And they inform us and we grow and we transform. And then I think that's the sort of fearlessness, that knowing that if you face something terrible and difficult that you don't want to face, there will be transformation that comes from it. And the thing is not forgetting that, mm. not freeze-framing it. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm tempted to ask you, uh, do you understand why your friend was murdered? Actually, I think I... I think I do now, because in the aftermath, as we were discovering more about what the particular situation was, I I can see energetic um, archetypes involved that that may have attracted certain kinds of of energies. I mean, it was very interesting. It was very complex. But I sort of made friends with it, I think. I think I saw that she was ready to leave her life and why, and uh, that circumstances sort of conspired to allow that to happen. So, can we, can we watch the energetic patterns of our life in, a, in an objective way? Of our own lives? That's yes. a very good question. Um, m- maybe sometimes. I mean, you know, I, I don't know about being that aware all the times, but I think like maybe in that drum journey where you're you're traveling and seeking a question through a trance that you may be more objective and being able to look back on your life and you know see it through a different uh, different lens. It's when we're living it. It's you know when we we may be able to look back on our past energetic patterns a little more easily. When you're living it, you're in it. <laughs> Maybe it's a matter of patience. A matter of patience and perspective. So you mentioned writing another book, and uh, love to hear about that. Okay, uh, getting very close to finishing that. Uh, it's called Voodoo Dance, and it's um, subtitled "Sex Lies and the Orishas." So the Orishas are. In West African spirituality, the religion of Ifa, which is the religion of the Yoruba people of Nigeria, um, they have their own pantheon of what we might call gods and goddesses or perhaps equivalent to saints or Hindu deities that are these different characters that were based on historical personages who ascended to divinity, but they are also archetypes of natural forces. So, for example, Oshun, 
the Orisha of the river. She's the river, but she's also uh, the energy of love and eroticism. So if you have, you need to adjust your life in that area, you have ceremonies, songs, chants to her, to Oshun. And then there's all different ones for different things. So um, around the same time that I was studying with Joseph Rael, I also met a West African medicine man, which they call a, a Babalao in the Ifa tradition, and was studying with him. And very many similarities. They both use drumming, dancing, chanting to change vibration because we are only energy. So the music and the dance is very much involved in the religion. And so I spent... Uh, many years also with this this West African Babalao, learned a lot about the religion, the ceremonies, and the way they work, and also had a romantic relationship with him. So that's all in the next book. <laughs> a wild ride. Oh, wild ride. <laughs> but what about sex? Talk to us about what you've learned about sex. I love sex. I wish that... It was easier to have uh, relationships around it. Um, I think it's the, the highest communication between people, the ultimate communi- communion. Um, it's, you know, a, I think just like a really rich part of life. And um, then, you know, can be so problematic in so many ways when there's lying and betrayal and um, all those things that often go with it. So... Wow, sex, it's great, and it can be just terrible. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so that leads me to the subject of intimacy. Why is intimacy so difficult between people? Because we're afraid, and because we want to control each other. And I think that's the trick. If you can really get beyond needing to control what that other person does to make you happy, what you feel like they need to do to make you happy, um, then maybe you can get to true intimacy. But for to, for two people to be able to do that at the same time, it's a challenge. Very difficult. So do you feel in some way that uh, you... Uh, live in intimacy with spirit, the divine? Very much so. With with the divine, with nature, with myself. You know, I think I think I have found, you know, intimacy there, all those places. And with other people at times. Speak a little bit uh, before we close about your intimacy with nature. I fell in love with New Mexico. I was born in Los Angeles, lived in Los Angeles, uh, love it there. But I remember being um, six years old and traveling on the train from Los Angeles to Iowa and going through New Mexico and just thinking, this is it. This is it for me, just looking at it through the train window. And there was a big thunderstorm and all that, but something so primal, so powerful in the landscape in the sky, particularly the huge clouds and the blue sky. And then I didn't really come to New Mexico until I was in my 40s, around the time of uh, my divorce. And then it just took me. I just really fell in love with 
um, especially this area in northern New Mexico, the George O'Keefe area. And um, I remember saying to a th- marriage counselor when my marriage was falling apart that I wanted to just go uh, live alone in New Mexico like George O'Keefe. And the, the psychologist said, now, Marsha, don't go overboard. <laughs> so I did go overboard okay. <laughs> in New Mexico. Oh. And it's like that sky, that was the the red land, the beautiful, vast barrenness of it, being able to see the, the rainstorms coming across the distance is just gorgeous. And it's just on a deep, primal level that I'm so connected to it. Well, I, I want to thank you very much, Marsha, for coming here today. And um, I'd like to ask you, take a moment and think about what you would like to give us in closing. That I want you to dance in the metaphoric and the literal and know that your dance is your dance. And it's beautiful for whatever it is. Um, And enjoy it. Okay. It's a wrap. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 